So with all of that being said, why don't you get your Bibles out? Um, wow. That was so exciting. Thank you for that encouragement. Um, as you're getting your Bibles out, turning to the Gospel of Mark, if you're using a paper Bible, it's um, in the beginning of the New Testament, which is about the right one-third of your paper Bible. If you're using an electronic Bible, we would encourage you to download the YouVersion Bible app. Um, we post all of our sermon notes, so everything that you'll see on the screen tonight will be in the YouVersion Bible app, as well as more. Um, so there are resources. Uh, for you to go um, deeper into the things that we're talking about. So if you haven't downloaded it yet, you can go to the App Store and type in Bible, and it will be the YouVersion Bible app that will pop up. Download that, and then when you open it up, if you go to the bottom right-hand corner, there's an icon that says More. Tap that icon, and then go to Events, and then you'll see Bethel Youth as an event that's populated. Go ahead and tap that, and then save that event, and then you can access those notes on a later date and access those resources as well. Um, and if you've missed any of our uh, sermons over the past few weeks, I would encourage you to listen to them to get caught up on what we've been uh, talking about and what's been taking place over the last few weeks in Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15. Um, there's too much for me to summarize in a short amount of time to give proper and adequate context in the time frame that we have. And so I would encourage you, if you're curious, if you've missed any of those sermons, go to Spotify. Um, and type in Bethel YTH and podcasts, and it will it will pop up. Or you in our U version notes, there's a link to it there as well. Um, but so we've been working our way through what is referred to as as Holy Week. Um, these are the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, which is what we are going to be talking about tonight. Um, directly before what, we'll, what we will be studying tonight, Jesus has been betrayed by one of his um, by one of his close followers, one of his disciples. He's been arrested. He stood on trial before the Jewish religious leaders as well as the Roman governor of the region of Jerusalem. And this is what's taken place, and it would be beneficial, one, to read the text surrounding what we're talking about tonight as well as um, listening to those sermons. And so uh, let's stand together as we read God's word and read our text. We're going to look at Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 47, and Aubrey is going to read that for us. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in, the front, in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up the clothes, they cast lots to see what each other would get. It was, the it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him on the, his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temples and built it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him along, among uh, themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified him also heaped insults at him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. 
I can't say that. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filling a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if, the, if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Solomon. In Galilee, these women had followed him and carried for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph from Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself awaiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus was already if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion <laughs> that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought the linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. That was a beast of a passage. <clears throat> so if you were to take this, this section, these 26 verses that Aubrey read, we could break this down into three different sections. Uh, the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through each of these sections. Um, the first two sections, the, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus, more in depth. Um, we're going to look at those. We're going to explain the historical and the cultural significance and context, as well as how that applies to us today. And at the end of the sermon, we are going to respond by taking communion together, as well as singing two songs and discussing questions in our small group. And so when you came in, you might have noticed that there's a communion cup underneath your chair. Um, that is uh, what we're going to be doing um, at the end of the sermon. So uh, please don't play with it, mess with it, open it up because it can't spill and it is grape juice and grape juice stains. So we'll try to save that for the end. So let's look at the first section, the first section, the crucifixion of Jesus, verses 21 through 32. So crucifixion was a relatively common uh, form of execution in this, you know, period of time. Many, excuse me, um, many different empires used it, but the Romans were the ones who perfected it. It was the most brutal, painful, and shameful way a person could experience death. It was so severe that Romans themselves could not be crucified unless directly ordered by Caesar. Not the little Caesar. <laughs> Thanks. That was a good one, wasn't it? Thanks, dude. I appreciate that. Thanks. That one just came off of my head. 
That was the only, and if the Caesar uh, uh, ordered someone, a Roman citizen, to be um, crucified, it was reserved for those who committed massive crimes, but oftentimes it was outsiders. And uh, these crimes that they committed were huge crimes against the Roman government. So what was the crucifixion uh, process? The prisoner would first be um, tied uh, uh, to a post and beaten with whips. And these whips weren't ordinary whips. This wasn't just a Indian... Indiana Jones um, whip. This were this was a whip made of leather strands with pieces of bone and lead at the end of them and other materials. They would whip the victims from their shoulders to their calves, and this beating would be so severe that the the that the prisoner's back would be ripped open and we be would be bleeding. The Roman soldiers were so good that they could whip someone essentially to the edge of their life without killing them. They wouldn't kill them because they wanted the person to experience the total humiliation and torture of crucifixion. And after they were whipped, they were required to carry a crossbeam of the cross. I have a picture kind of depicting this. This is um, a crossbeam of their cross. They would, they would, their arms would be tied to it um, on their shoulders, and they would carry this beam to the place of the skull or Golgotha. And this place is also referred to, you might have, if you know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, you might have heard this word Calvary. This is also another reference to Golgotha, but translated from Latin. And this crossbeam weighed anywhere between 75 to 125 pounds. This, this uh, crossbeam was difficult uh, to, and painful to carry because of the amount of blood that was lost and the shock that the person's body would be in. And this beam, this picture is, it seems pretty uh, soft. It's probably not a super accurate representation um, because this beam was, was rough and had splinters. And the idea was that these, these splinters would then poke and prod the open flesh on the prisoner's back as they are carrying it. And from our text, we can see that Jesus didn't have enough strength to carry this beam after his beating. And the Romans forced Simon of Cyrene to take it. So Simon was most likely on this, like, Cyrene is in northern Africa, and he was probably on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, which happened just a few hours before this. And the reason prisoners would only carry this crossbeam was that the uprights of the cross were permanently fixed and standing at Golgotha. I want you to think of something. I want to bring it to our context. Um, think of the opening scene of the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I have a picture for you right here. You have Jack Sparrow. He is on the, the top of his ship, but you would know that like when he's sailing in, the ship is sinking, right? And it just perfect timing right to the dock. So as he is sailing into the harbor, um, there are pirates hanged between some rocks. So this is what, what Jack Sparrow sees. I have this next picture. This is what he sees when he is coming into the harbor. And what this was, this was uh, the English people, they were saying, hey, if you are caught as a pirate, this is your punishment. This is a warning to you as a pirate. Don't mess with us. Okay, you can take this picture down. Um, this is kind of what these vertical posts represented in Roman culture. Because the crucifixion symbolized to the Jewish people and the outsiders, 
Do not mess with us because this is what can happen to you. So once at Golgotha, the prisoner um, would be thrown to the ground and then they would, they would attach the crossbeam to the upright and they would um, attach the person to the cross. They would drive five to seven inch nails through the wrist between the bones. Everybody put your finger right kind of in the middle of your wrist and you can feel all of those arteries and those nerves and those ligaments. That's right where they would nail that huge nail through. And this nail would hit, there's a nerve in here, the median nerve, and it would cause immense amounts of pain that you that would be felt through your arms and your torso and this would actually cause a condition known as causalgia causalgia something like that and basically what happens is even the slightest movement of wind on the body that feeling would cause vast amounts of pain. The sensation um, is often likened to a soldier getting a limb blown off in war and why some soldiers would ask their fellow soldiers, just put me out of my misery because of the sensory pain that happens. And there's a word that's actually has its roots in the crucifixion process that describes a pain level. Have you ever heard of the word excruciating? This is excruciating pain. That actually means out of the cross. So the word excruciating came from this time period. So the length of time that, a, that it took for a person to die varied, but it was anywhere between four hours to four days. The person's body would become weaker and weaker from blood loss, lack of oxygen, and shock. And as the person is slowly dying, it was customary for the soldiers to be playing a game to determine who gets to keep the prisoners close. This is what is happening to Jesus. And all the while this is happening, not only are the Romans mocking Jesus, but so are the Jewish people and Jewish religious leaders. The very people who Jesus came to rescue from sin are the ones who are mocking, spitting, and shaming him. Can you imagine how heartbreaking this would be for Jesus? On the one hand, you know this is how sin is going to be eradicated once and for all. But on the other hand, um, these are your people and they rejected you to the point of death. And verse 27 says Jesus was crucified between two rebels. And these men were most likely um, a part of the same group that Barabbas was a part of that we, um, read, we studied a few weeks ago. He was a part of the group of the Zealots. And if you were here, you learned that the Zealots were Jewish rebels or Jewish terrorists who led revolts against the Roman government to release the Roman oppressive rule. So they were Jewish terrorists of the nation of Rome. And the Gospel of Luke records interactions between these two rebels. Luke 23, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me Excuse me, when you come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what we see is amid these criminals' insults, there is a point when this man realizes this man is innocent and not deserving of this punishment. 
He surrenders his life to Jesus and will be in heaven when he died. So this shows us, what does this show us? This shows us that no person is too far gone. No person is outside of the hands of God's grace. And this shows us that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. And something we like to do is we like to put limits on what we think the cross can accomplish. We sometimes try to convince ourselves not to talk to a person or, to, um, or, or be friends with a person because of what they choose to do with their lives. We shy away from living a life that professes Jesus as Lord because we don't want to offend the other person. And can I tell you that I'm right there with you? It's a tension that I live on a daily basis. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, and I believe that Jesus is the, the Savior and the only way to heaven. But sometimes it's like, oh, this person has their own belief system, and they believe that, and I don't want to be the jerk that tells them that, that I believe deep within my heart that their belief is incorrect. And this is a really hard tension. But sometimes what this leads to is we... we um, we don't believe that the cross can save these people. So this passage shows us that even terrorists can be saved by the grace and power of Jesus' death. Let's move to the next portion of our text that lays out the death of Jesus. Verse 29 through 31 records people insulting Jesus, mocking him, saying, Come down from the cross and save yourself. You saved others. Why can't you save yourself? And then verse 32 um, shows us why they said these things. It says, let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Here it is. That we may see and believe. So why are they asking him to save yourself, to come down from this? Because they want to see. They want to see this miraculous thing happen so that they can believe. And this shows us how important this was to these people. Because in their minds, they're like, this is what's going to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. My question is, is would that have worked? I realize that they're insulting him. They're like, hey, save yourself. You saved all these other people. I realize they're insulting him. But they, they, they also saw so many of his miracles and didn't believe him then. So what makes them think that this miracle now would change their mind? And the crazy thing is, is Jesus healed people fully and completely. People who could not walk. Since birth, he healed them. A woman who had continual bleeding, he healed her. Blind people, they could see. People with leprosy, their skin was cleansed. Demon-possessed people were made whole. He raised people from the dead. These are the things that Jesus did. And yet these people are like, hey, so you should save yourself and then I'm going to believe. These are not small things that Jesus did and they need to be taken note of. And sometimes in distress and discomfort or frustration, we can demand things of God to prove his existence of power in our life. And this comes out a lot of times in the, if you do this, I will do this. Ever played that game with God? I know I have. If you do this, I will hold up my end of the deal. If you heal my mom, I will always follow you. I will always be grateful if you get me the relationship that I want. If I get this job, if I get into this college, if I get this grade, if you deliver me from this. The question is, what happens 
if God doesn't answer those requests? What happens if God answers the request, but it's differently than what you were hoping for him? Does that mean that God is not good? Does that mean God is not present and that God doesn't hear your prayer? And something I said two weeks ago bears repeating. We don't know why God does and doesn't do certain things. We have to be reminded often that we don't have the complete picture. Why don't we have the complete picture? Because I didn't speak everything into it. We want, we've convinced ourselves that this miracle that God is going to do will sustain our faith. And we all know, we're, if, and if we don't, we should, that supernatural things alone will not support your faith. At some point, there has to be faith that God is who he says he is. In Matthew chapter 12, there's an example of Jewish leaders, religious leaders, who had seen plenty of miracles performed, and yet they did not believe, and they wanted Jesus to perform even more miracles. Psalm 78 talks about people who have seen signs and wonders, and yet they still do not believe. We need to ask ourselves, why are we asking God to work in our life? Am I asking because it will benefit me, or am I asking that God's will be done no matter what? Am I asking because I believe God is all-powerful It can do miraculous things if he chooses? It comes down to, will I trust God even if the miracle doesn't happen? With that in mind, let's get back to the significance and the importance of Jesus' death. It can be easy to get lost in, lost in the gruesomeness of the crucifixion and forget why Jesus was enduring this. Jesus was on the cross and he cried out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a direct quotation of Psalm 22, verse 1. And a question to ask when reading this text is, and this is a question that I asked myself, why did, what did it mean uh, when he said that God had forsaken him? Have you ever asked that question if you've read this before? What does it mean? That God has forsaken him? Did God truly forsake Jesus? Isn't God always with the believer? Why would God leave Jesus in that vulnerable and heavy moment? So the answer to the question, did God truly forsake Jesus? The answer is yes. God did forsake Jesus, but we need to explain why. One article about this phrase stated its importance of what sense God had forsaken Jesus. Jesus was not forsaken because he was innocent, he was blameless and sinless, he had done nothing to forfeit his right standing with God. This is not why Jesus was forsaken. He was forsaken because he bore our transgressions. He took our iniquities. He redeemed us from the curse of sin by becoming the curse of sin. So Jesus was forsaken because of what he took on, not because of who he was. He was being forsaken because of what he took upon himself. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he, said, he explains it this way. He says, God made him, who is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was made to be sin for us, the wrath of God for sin was poured out 
on Jesus. And a crucial theological distinction is that Jesus did not cease to be God or separate himself from the Holy Spirit's empowerment on the cross. The unity of the triune God was not interrupted at the cross. Scripture describes God as triune, operating as distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And that is so huge, and we can't get into that tonight, and we will get into that on a, on a later date. Um, but it's important for us to know and understand that unity of the triune God was left intact on the cross. So Jesus had experienced rejection and suffering in his life, but nothing compared to the separation experienced at this moment when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One scholar said it this way about the forsakenness of Jesus. The depths of the saying are too deep to be plumbed or be to be made right and to be made to make perfect sense. But the least inadequate interpretations are those which find in it a sense of desolation in which Jesus felt the horror of sin so deeply that for a time the closeness of his communion with the Father was obscured. So the wrath of God that was destined for us because of our sin, Jesus took it upon himself once and for all. And the Apostle Peter reiterates the significance of what Jesus did in 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so the core of the gospel is Jesus lived a life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died. And he rose again, overcoming sin and death. And this allows us to receive the free gift of salvation. And salvation comes when we confess our sins and declare Jesus as the Lord of our life, as 1 John chapter 1 says. So on the cross, Jesus was our substitute for sin. And when he died, something incredible happened. I'm almost done, guys, okay? Are you guys still with me? Just on a simple word count, this sermon is like almost twice as long as what normal sermons are. So I'm like trucking through all of this, okay? Are you still with me? Okay, I hope that you're gathering the importance of the cross. Um, so on the cross, Jesus was our substitute for sin. And when he died, something, I already said that. Um, so let's read verses 38 through 39. It says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. So when Jesus had given up his spirit and the payment for sin was paid, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. So what did this temple in the curtain represent? This thick curtain made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn separated the common part of the Jewish temple from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the earthly presence of God dwelt in separation from the rest of the people. And this separation was caused by sin, as Isaiah 59 describes. So only once a year, the Jewish high priest on the Day of Atonement was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies to offer a blood sacrifice to pay for the people's sin in Israel. 
So the event of the curtain being torn at the moment Jesus breathed his last and finished the work of atonement was a symbol of God no longer residing in a temple separated from people because of sin. Jesus' death on the cross had fully paid for sin, opening the door for humanity to be near to God. And the importance of the, the curtain being torn from top to bottom signifies that it was nothing of our doing that created access to God the Father. It was what Jesus did on the cross. A remarkable fact is that at the, ex time, the exact time Jesus died, the evening sacrifice in the temple was being made. So there was a sacrifice that the high priest was making to sacrifice for the sins of the people. And this is cool because Jesus was described and was the Lamb of God in Isaiah 53 and John 1. The perfect one who would die in our place for sin. The difference in Jesus' sacrifice, like I said, was because it was once and for all. No need to sacrifice in the temple again. And this is the best news that the world has ever been given. No longer is there separation between humanity and God because Jesus closed that gap. And after his death, he would be buried by Joseph of Arimathea. This man was a prophesying believer of Jesus and wanted him to be buried before the Sabbath. And then he would complete the burial process after the Sabbath. Everybody take a deep breath. So Taylor, how do we summarize this entire thing? If you could walk away with one thing, this is what I want you to walk away with. Jesus paid the ultimate price for sin so that we could receive the free gift of salvation. If you could walk away with one thing, Jesus paid the ultimate price for sin so that we could receive the free gift of salvation. So what we're going to do before we sing songs and go into small groups, we are going to, um, we're going to partake in communion. So if you would grab that cup that is underneath your chair, I'm going to invite uh, Patrick and Rome and, and Emily. They're going to come up and we're going to sing a few songs in a moment. But I want you to hold... I want you to hold this. If anyone didn't get one, can you raise your hand? If someone didn't get one, um, Dayton's gonna, there's a couple back here. Dayton's gonna get you one. So I want you to, I want you to hold, um, I want you to hold this in your hand. I wanna, I wanna get something out of the way right now, too. Um, Every, every time that I do, we, we do communion together um, in youth, um, I'm always really nervous. Can I be honest with you? And you want to know why I'm always nervous? Because it feels weird. Do you guys feel that? Where it just, it feels kind of like this ritualistic thing that we're like, we're eating this wafer together, we're drinking this cup together. But I, I hope and I pray that today that this feels different. As we talk in depth about the price that Jesus paid for your life, I pray that, as you would say, this would hit different today. So what you're going to do is you're going to take the top piece. I want you to peel it back. 
I don't want you to take it yet. We're going to take the bread together. We're going to take the cup together. But communion is a way we demonstrate our thankfulness for what Jesus has done so that we may live in right relationship with God in this life. The Apostle Paul speaks of communion in a letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So I want to ask, like, answer the question, so what does it mean to take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner? I want to read you a quote. It says, It may mean to disregard the true meaning of the bread and the cup and to forget the tremendous price our Savior paid for our salvation. Or it may mean to allow the ceremony to become a dead and formal ritual or to come to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin. In keeping with Paul's instruction, we should examine ourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So what we're going to do before we take the bread, before we take the cup, we're going to take a moment to align our hearts with God, to confess sin in our life that needs to be confessed of. And maybe you're here tonight and you have yet to put your trust in Jesus and put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. And if you want to do that, I would encourage you to do that. And if you feel that desire to do that right now. And putting your complete trust in him um, is just simply believing that Jesus is the way to eternal life. It's recognizing that your sin disqualifies you from a right relationship with God. But when you confess your sin and surrender your life, God sees your life through what Jesus has done on the cross. So we're going to be just silent for about 30 seconds. I want to give you an opportunity to just align your heart with God, to confess sin that needs to be confessed of. And then maybe for you, you want to surrender your life to Jesus for the first time. I would encourage you to do that. Um, Patrick's going to play quietly. I would encourage you to maybe close your eyes, to maybe focus yourself in. And we're going to take about 30 seconds in silence and align ourselves and confess. I want you to, to hold this communion in your hand. I want you to peel back the first layer, and I want you to take the, the wafer out. Luke 22, verse 19, it says, And he took the bread. This is Jesus with his disciples celebrating the first Passover meal together, and he's instituting, the, um, instituting communion. He says, He took the bread, he gave thanks, and broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. God, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for um, the body that was broken so that we could have everlasting life. Let's take the bread together. Let's peel back the juice. Let's be, be very careful. Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that was made. 
your blood that was shed to cover our sin, to give us access to God the Father. And Jesus, help us to never forget what you have done for us. Help us to never forget the the brevity of what you have done for us, the significance and the importance of what you've done. Let's take the, the cup together. Once again, Jesus, we thank you. We're a group of, of people that are, are in awe that there would be a God of the universe that would care about us and that would love us so much that you would give up your life. So Jesus, I pray that we would remember that. In your name we pray, amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to stand together and we're going to respond in another way. The band is going to lead us in a few songs and then... Kyan's going to come up and pray. And we're going to do small groups a little bit differently tonight. Um, We are just going to kind of break up into groups of about four people. And we're going to walk through some of the questions. And then at 8.15, we will dismiss you. And so Kyan, at the end of the set, is going to come pray. And um, that's what we're going to do for small groups. We are going to do kind of small groups in your little area. So Patrick and team, could you lead us? Mm -hmm.